The Word of God from Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 through chapter 4, verse 7. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So reads the Word of God, in an absolutely amazing text of Scripture. I've been studying this text all week. I've prepared some thoughts, not that go into each and every question that might be raised from this text, because there are some rich statements here, biblical, theological truth, that we could take weeks to trace out just in very small portions if we were moving through Galatians. But taking it as a whole this morning... And then just reading it again together, I'm, I'm overwhelmed again with what the text is telling us about who God is, about what he's done for us in Christ, and about what this means for us personally. That was all at no extra charge. Now I'll get started. I say that for the benefit of those who are trying to track with whatever I'm saying uh, back in the booth. Today, my friends, today is when we celebrate together as a body of believers the central most of the amazing array of miracles that our God has done to create and then to redeem and then to recreate this world in which we live. Today is the day that we celebrate the central most among those miracles. It's the miracle of Bethlehem. And that miracle was surely stunning to behold. As we've talked about on many occasions, we had a good time just reflecting on this again this past week at prayer meeting on Wednesday evening. 
just reflecting on the message of the angels to the shepherds, to the humblest group in society, on a hillside outside Bethlehem at nighttime. Shepherds on a night shift, you don't get lower than that. And yet the text records that what appears to be the full number of angels in heaven suddenly broke through the darkness to announce this news to that group of all people. And then the eternal Son of God in the flesh appears inside a stable and is laid in a feeding trough as a cradle. We're welcoming a lot of babies into Grace Church right now. Mothers, how would you like to lay your little newborn in the feeding trough of an animal? Just think about that, that that's how the Son of God entered the world. The miracle of Bethlehem is surely stunning to behold. Those are just the practical realities. How about the theological ones? How does God even become flesh? How is that possible? How is he who is by nature omnipresent localized into one human being? How is he who is omnipotent, all-powerful, confined to the restraints of a mortal body? How does the changeless one change in these ways and yet remain who he is and not forfeit his status as God. How? Only God can answer these questions. But he goes beyond that. Only God can answer the questions, but he goes beyond that to actually bring about the realities that we find unanswerable as questions. He actually brings them about as he did when the eternal Son, the creator of all that was made, Scripture says, John 1, Colossians 1, the eternal Son, the creator of all that is made, came into this world in the natural way through the womb of a woman as an infant. Our aim today, just so we're clear, our aim today is just going to be to appreciate this glorious miracle. To, to drink it in and ponder it in ways that magnify its worth. And particularly its worth to us personally. But you can't do that without it being to the praise of God's glory. So we're going to ponder these truths today to the praise of God's glory but we're going to ponder them particularly as their worth is made known to us personally what we receive because God became flesh we've been set up to appreciate the instruction in today's passage by our study of Romans as I said just a few moments ago and and this particular text here Galatians 3 23 through 4 7 finds a particular partner passage in Romans 8, 12 through 17. Many of the same themes repeated there. Sonship and inheritance and spirit and intimacy with the Father and more. But at the heart of this passage 
that we've read today, and you heard it a moment ago as I read it, the heart of this passage is the coming of Jesus at God's precisely appointed time to bring about each and all of these blessings that I just listed through his promised and progressively unfolding salvation. So that's what we're going to do to get together today. We're just going to drink it in and ponder its worth and value to us to the praise of God's glory, recognizing that the arrival of Jesus at God's meticulously appointed time stands at the heart of what we just read. So let's walk through this text in three brief steps today. And you can see them listed in your bulletin. We're not really dividing them out as verses because we're going to be drawing from different portions of the passage as we progress. But essentially what we're going to see is that salvation history plays out like a maturing process. You heard that probably in the text, but we're going to draw that out and understand it a little bit better. Second, the birth of Jesus functions like a rite of passage in that maturing process. In fact, like the central most. And then the Holy Spirit is God's gift of life to his children. The blessings and benefits of the incarnation for us to the praise of God's glory. Let's just walk through this text in these three steps. Salvation history plays out like a maturing process. It's an interesting statement to make. Let's think about it. When Paul gets started on this particular point, in verses 23 and 24 of this passage, it can initially sound like he's just painting a, a simple sort of before and after type picture. Like, like he's just talking about a progression of time, maybe not a process that's unfolding. But, verse 25, when he writes, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We can see at that point that he has in mind more than just the passing of time, more than just putting things in a chronological sequence, but he has in mind a progression in maturity, a growth, a development that we need to pick up on and understand and appreciate in the text. So that when... Verse 23, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed, or the coming faith would be revealed. The picture is not so much what we might think at the beginning of us being incarcerated for wrongdoing as though we were in the prison of our sin and he liberated us from that. It's actually not like that. That's not the sort of prison or imprisonment he's talking about. The picture is not so much of us being imprisoned for our wrongdoing, but of our being trapped in the immature stage of God's promised salvation. Something good is coming, a development is happening, and we're caught in the preliminary stages and haven't yet received the benefit of what's on the way. We were like children, obeying the rules of the household not from a place of understanding them or perceiving why they're important, of living into the privilege of possessing the family legacy or representing the family name. 
We weren't doing any of those things. We were only obeying because we'd be disciplined by our parents, by our guardian, if we didn't obey. Paul is talking about the early stage of salvation before the coming of Christ where God's people were under the law as being analogous to that, to a child underaged in the family where they're just being taught the ropes, so to speak, with no understanding at all of why their course is being directed as it is. That's what life was like then for the children of God. Verse 23, before faith came, and we can see explicitly by implication already, but when verse 24 is stated, you can see it explicitly. When Paul says here when faith came, he's talking about when Christ came. So then, verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. The law was our guardian, keeping us on track, we might say, in order that we might be justified by faith when he arrives. It's keeping our minds on the promises God has made and on the implications that's supposed to have for us so that when Christ arrives, we understand who he is and we recognize it and we enter into faith. We believe that this is the fulfillment of the promises. I'm saying we here because it's the people of God together. We've seen that and understood that from Romans. Who is it who is inclined to hear and to respond to who God is? The Jews have been given the oracles of God through which these promises have been made and the hope ignited. But their message was for the nations and there were a number from the nations who were living in hope along with the Jews of the fulfillment of the word of God in the coming Messiah. And each of those, Paul is saying here, were trapped in the immaturity of their faith because all they had were the promises and they hadn't yet seen the fulfillment. They were like underage children in the household, not having tasted of the fullness of what the promises were going to mean. The law, we might say, was watching over all who knew and trusted God in those days. Jew and Gentile alike, as we'll see, verses 27 to 29, make that clear. The law was watching over all who knew and trusted God in those days, reminding them of what is right and wrong, reminding them of their covenant requirements before God, convicting them of sin if they would read the law. But as we know from Israel's history, so often not even the kings or priests stayed in touch with the law. I was just reading in Zechariah this morning and being reminded of the fact that God's people were out of touch with his word for long periods of time. So the law would remind them of what is right and wrong and would convict them of sin if they'd read it and obey it. But it was also standing as a witness against them if they wouldn't. There is no way you could say that you didn't understand what God was saying to you because he put it in words on paper. That's how we read it. As the people gathered for worship, they would hear the word of God read. It was given to them in their own language. So it stood witness against them if they ignored it. But we also recognize from a little bit earlier in that passage in Romans 8 that I just referenced a moment ago that the law was also unable to do anything to solve the problem. 
All it did was stand there and hold the standard. And as such, it was a guardian over the people so that they couldn't forget about what God promised. But there was no provision in the law to take care of the problem that the law itself identified in the people. They were sinful and needed a savior. Thus, the promises of the law. The law was just keeping them safe by holding the standard until one who could meet that standard showed up and provided a way for the people to do the same, to meet that standard, to be counted righteous according to the law, even while they were still incapable of obeying it perfectly. When I look into the eyes of one who has trusted Christ as Savior, I ask, are you perfect according to the law? And what is the answer? Yes, because Christ's righteousness has been credited to me by faith. I am faultless according to the law. Really? You never sin? You never offend the law? Of course I do. But if I confess my sin, God is faithful and just to forgive my sin and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I stand in the righteousness of Christ by faith. I am guiltless according to the law, even while I still stumble. Folks, this is glorious truth, amen? This is all tied into the incarnation, Paul is saying. The law couldn't do anything to help us. It just held the standard until one came who could meet that standard and could provide a way for us to meet that standard as well even while we were still incapable of obeying it perfectly. In short, God's people needed a new heart that was in line with God. They needed a new heart with his law programmed into it. Just like God had promised through the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and even alluding to it in other places. They needed his spirit to live in them just as the prophet Ezekiel told them was going to happen. That was part of the promised new covenant, the spirit of God being present with his people. Inconceivable category. It's part of the reason I believe Israel had a hard time holding on to the truth of the scriptures because the categories were just inconceivable. It's like, you mean the God who is present has a shining light there in the tabernacle and then the temple, the one in whose presence Moses could go, and when he came out, he was shining and veiled his face until it faded. That God is going to be in us, with us? You could hear Israel saying, I don't want that. No one can see God and live. That's one thing Israel knew. It's quoted a number of times in the Old Testament. Just like the people at the foot of Mount Sinai, we don't want God coming that close. We will die. Yet the promised new covenant is the Spirit of God coming upon you. How does that work? I don't even know. But they needed His Spirit to live in them in order to set them right with God, making them alive to his word, making them alive to his will, 
making them alive to his ways and forgiving them when they fell, when they failed to live in conformity to him, to him they return in humility and repentance and faith and receive cleansing yet again, already now accomplished through a Christ who provided salvation. Well, that's just what we hear as Paul explains himself further as chapter 4 begins. What he says here is, I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the eventual owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. He's under the law, verse 23 told us back in chapter 3, until the date set by his father. In 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 the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the word. That's that really interesting description that means slightly different things at different places where Paul uses it. Here, I think it's talking about the basic standards of the law. We are being held enslaved to the basic standards of right behavior in the law, but without the ability to obey them in a way that pleases God. We're we're being held captive under the guardianship of the law that identified our problem that couldn't fix it. That is what it was like to know God's standard and not be able to do it. Sweet as it may have been to possess the law, and we heard throughout the book of Romans how sweet it was that Israel received the law. Sweet as it may have been to possess the law, this scenario Paul is saying here is like being in prison. Chapter 3, verse 23. It's like slavery. Chapter 4, verse 1. To know what God expects and to not be able to do it is like prison. But then, chapter 3, verse 23, faith came. Faith came. But then, we could say, because of the correlation between Christ and faith we've already painted, Christ came. If you're listening closely, I could stop here. And you'd get the joy that I was talking about that has filled my heart this week from this text. Into that, Christ came. I'm going to keep preaching, even though I think you get it. Christ came, not meaning there was no faith before him. We saw back in verse 6 of chapter 3, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was a man of faith. It's always been true that the righteous shall live by faith. We see that in verse 11 of chapter 3, quoting Habakkuk, an ancient prophet. So Paul's not saying that faith came, faith, the category, showed up with Christ. He's talking about the fulfillment of the promises of faith, the one who's actually going to make a difference and enable you to live by faith, enable you to do what Habakkuk wrote about. Those who are righteous by faith will live. Well, that faith came in Christ. Faith coming from a fallen heart, one that's estranged from God, can't reconcile us to God. That's the problem. We need a new heart. 
We needed that promised new heart from Ezekiel 36. That heart that comes with a new brand of faith that does please God. Hebrews 11, without faith it's impossible to please God. But when we receive the faith that he provides, we're enabled to please him. That faith which is a gift of God, Ephesians 2 verse 8. And that wasn't available until Jesus came, until faith came in fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises of a Messiah and a new covenant relationship with God where he says, I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. That's the promised new covenant. When Jesus arrived, it's here. Faith has come. New covenant life is possible. A new heart with the word of God written on it. Flawless obedience? No, not yet. Not yet. We heard those categories in Romans. We're in the realm of Christ at this point, but we still live in the realm of Adam, and we fight this battle daily. But praise be to God, the new heart has been given because it's been accomplished, that salvation that Jesus provided, that he was born to provide. So Ezekiel 36 says, From God to his people, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And when that happens, it will be like the day of your maturing. It's provided once for all through Christ, but as each new believer embraces by faith what Christ provided, it's like their day of maturing. It's like their bar mitzvah, except that it's not, because bar mitzvah means son of the commandments. That's not what's being accomplished here. When we read what Paul is talking about here in Galatians, and I believe this is part of the message of Galatians. It really should be celebrating our bar Yahweh. We become sons of God, children of God by faith in him. This day of maturing happened at different times in the ancient world according to different cultural groups. The bar mitzvah or the bat mitzvah for the girls, a Jewish youth happened shortly after their 12th birthday according to records. For the Greeks, apaturia is what it was called. It occurred at about age 18. In the Roman world, liberalia was an annual festival held on the 17th of March, and a child usually matured around age 14, but it appears as though the father had some freedom to determine the year on which each of his children would come of age. But in that tradition, you, you take off an old cloak and put on a new one. That, that says you've, you've matured, you've, you've grown into an adult, a responsible member of the family with full rights and privileges before the law. In our nation, much debate has occurred through the years regarding whether our children should be counted as adults at age 16 or 18 or 21. So we just divide it up and we give some of them at 16 and some at 18, some at 20, and some still wait till 25. I don't know what that says about our culture. 
But there's still some semblance of this kind of rite of passage in our culture today. Whichever model Paul had in mind here, that day, as you know, was greatly anticipated and long remembered in the life of the child whose rite of passage into maturity was being celebrated. No one would want to go back to life before that day once it's been celebrated in their behalf. It is a glorious day, a day long awaited, and none of us would go back. That's why Paul is saying to this Galatians, just as a little side note, I am astonished that you are doing this. Do you know what this means? And he's in the heart of explaining it at this point. We're just lifting this out that makes us want to go back and study Galatians again, I think. It's a wonderful letter. Wes did a great job with an installment from Galatians um, late last summer in our Romans series. For all who've received Christ as our reconciliation to God, we'd say it in the language of verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, Paul is saying we have put on Christ. We have come of age by faith in him. We've received our new heart in him. For in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith, regardless of our ethnicity or of our cultural standing, of our gender. Verse 28 makes that clear. And by the way, folks, that's what that's talking about. What Paul is saying here is not that there's no difference between these folks. There's just no different salvation for them. Salvation comes to all equally, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, all are saved by one and the same means. All come of age when by faith in Christ they're reconciled to God. That's his point. Don't let anybody rip that verse out of context and make it mean something so much less than it means right there on the page. What a glorious truth that is. We don't need different saviors based upon the color of our skin or of our annual income or even of our gender. We don't need a different Savior. Jesus is sufficient for us all. And then he finishes with a wonderful statement that plugs in so richly with his letter to the Romans. And if we're Christ's, then we're Abraham's offspring. If we're Christ's, he's not saying if we've been born into the right ethnic line. He's saying if we're Christ. If we have trusted in Christ as Savior, then we're Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. We embrace the promise as ours. So what do we inherit as Abraham's offspring? That's what moves us into part three this morning. Third step. What do we receive? What do we inherit as Abraham's offspring? Well, surely, we inherit the full estate of the Father. That's the whole argument that Paul is making. We inherit every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in him. That's the way he wrote it to the Ephesians. There's our inheritance. 
But I'm going to surprise you with a statement here. In some important ways, we inherit even more than that. Like, wait a minute, how can you inherit more than all of the blessings that exist in heaven? Well, when we read those words, we can think of heaven and all will inherit there as God's adopted children, but we can miss the fact that all of those blessings have a present manifestation. So if we think of them that way, we need to recognize there's more to it than just that. It's not just when we arrive in his presence, all the blessings of dwelling in his presence will be ours in him. We actually receive them here and now when we read those words we can recognize that as his adopted children, we have some immediate inheritance right here and now in this world. In Christ, for instance, in the language of Peter, we receive all that pertains to life and godliness in him. All that pertains to life and godliness. That doesn't mean we're now flawless, but that does mean that there is nothing missing in the gift of Christ in his salvation to us, that our sin can now nullify and end. There is nothing we can do that will outsend the grace that God has given us through Christ. All that pertains to life and godliness is ours, including the promise of forgiveness when we sin. Okay? So there's nothing missing. We can live in the glories of the realm of Christ even while we continue fighting sin in our hearts because all that pertains to life and godliness has been given to us in him. We don't lack anything that can cleanse and restore our relationship with God in Christ. That's included in the promise that we inherit through Abraham. Paul writes here in verse 6, Because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son. I love the way he states that here. It's unique here in Galatians. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, just like Ezekiel said would happen. Has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You know, that's only three places in Scripture. Jesus cried, Abba, Father, Mark 14, in the garden, as he's praying. Romans 8, his spirit is given to us, and we cry, Abba, Father. And here, the spirit himself, as he intercedes for us, is crying, Abba, Father. We're in good company. We're in good company when we look to the Father and call out to him as the one who has adopted us. We're praying now with Jesus and the Spirit, calling out to God at a time of need. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Period, bottom line, that's it. We are heirs to the Holy Spirit. Because Christ came. When we receive by faith God's inconceivable miracle of sending the second person of the Trinity into this world as our salvation, 
What Paul is telling us here is that we inherit the third person of the Trinity to dwell with us and be in us forever. That's how Jesus taught his disciples in John 14. To live in us right here and now as God's down payment on heaven and his guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's how Paul puts it in Ephesians 1.14. So when we receive by faith the second person of the Trinity, we inherit third as, I love this, God's down payment on the future promises of heaven. Usually you make a down payment to prove that you can pay the whole bill, right? It's a, it's a good faith thing. In fact, it's the earnest on the down payment. That's the word that's here. It's, it's, the, it's the beginning amount that says, yes, I'm down payment, and then I'll also be good for the mortgage, right? Sign of good faith is God's ability to deliver on his salvation in doubt, does he need to prove his worthiness and his ability to pay the promises that he has given? Wow. Um, no. If he has sent his son into the world in human form and he has lived sinlessly perfect according to the law and he has gone to the cross and died a substitutionary death in the place of all those who trust in him, he rises again from the dead in victory over sin and death ascends to the Father and promises to return, you know, at that point, I think his word's good. <laughs> I think I'll trust him on that and believe that he's going to keep his promises. But God does more than that. Jesus had already told his disciples, I'm going to go away, and it's good for you that I go away because then you'll receive the Spirit, the Helper, the Comforter, the one that will be with you forever. Promise we just heard, right? so that you'll have the Spirit going with you through this life. All that pertains to life and godliness is yours because the God whose Shekinah glory was present in the temple is now dwelling in you. You're the temple. And you collectively are the temple of God in which he dwells by his Spirit. All that pertains to life and godliness is yours in Christ Jesus. All of it tied off right here in Galatians 3 to the Incarnation. Amazing. We receive the Holy Spirit as God's assurance of our gift of life. <laughs> you know what's interesting? There's still echoes of this in the whole bar mitzvah process. I was reading about that this week. If cash is given at a bar mitzvah, are you aware of the fact that they encourage you to do so in increments of $18, multiples of 18? So if you're going to give $50, you should give 54. That was one of the examples. Do you know why? It's because 18 is the numerical equivalent of the Hebrew word chai, life. You're giving life. <laughs> That's what's being celebrated. You've, you've entered into life at this moment and the monetary gift is reflecting that the young person is transitioning into life all this just leads us back then 
to what we identified earlier as the heart of this passage, and it all leads us back to it with renewed zeal. Verses 4 and 5 are the heart of the matter. This is that which was accomplished so that all of the rest that we've talked about is done. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, born into the immaturity of salvation history. You get that? To redeem those who are being held prison in that state so that we might receive adoption as sons and then with that comes the rest of the inheritance that he's talking about here. This fullness of time, it's gotten a lot of attention from a lot of different folks, all right? Fullness of time wasn't an historical accident, just so we know. God just sort of waiting there in heaven until everything was right, a a, a strong imperial government, a a, a unified economy on earth, a, a common language, good roads for travel, all of the different things that we hear about that were indicators of the fullness of times, and all of them are true. But that was all the work of God. That was God establishing the fullness of times. When you read from the prophet Daniel and see what God sees as he looks down the corridors of time, the successive progression of world empires, God knew from the beginning when Christ was going to come. And he awaited the fullness of times and brought it about. It was all the work of God to establish the perfect setting for his son's arrival in this world, to bring his eternal plan of salvation to fruition so that his children could be freed from bondage to their sin and come of age in his family as full heirs to him and to his kingdom and to all that that entails. That's good news, amen? This, my friends, this is what we're celebrating today. The incarnation of Jesus that marks our coming of age in the family. And now living with the gifts that he has bestowed upon us through the coming of his son at that first Christmas celebration and recognizing that in those gifts we have everything we need to guide us through this life until he returns. And then we enjoy all of it, finally unencumbered by the sin that the law identified and that his sacrifice freed us from, but that we've still been trapped in while inhabiting the flesh. This is what we celebrate together today, and we rejoice in it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together, and as we pray, we're going to invite the musicians to return the platform and the communion service to join us. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the birth of Jesus. Thank you for this rich text of Scripture that helps us to understand and appreciate it, contextualize it, and grasp what it is that we have received. Thank you for this close link between the incarnation of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit. We tend to think of the Spirit and associate him only with that period 
after Jesus ascended back to the Father when the church waited. And then on the day of Pentecost, the gift was given. But here, it's tied in to the very birth of Jesus. And when we're adopted as sons, we receive that gift. <coughs> Father, thank you. And now as we remember Christ's death, help us to do that as well through the lens of his birth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.